welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast. I'm your co-host Bridget Keys, and I'm your other co-host TJ West, and we are talking today about season three, episode ten, "Stage Struck." All right, Teach, take it away. All right. So in this episode, Jessica reconnects with a couple of old thespian friends of hers. The what do they call them? The Battling Lords, I believe, uh, who are played by Edward Mulhair and the great Eleanor Parker. Um, and their names are Maggie and Julian. And they're part of this stage production. And as it turns out, Maggie's understudy is murdered. And we have to figure out who did it. And it turns out that Julian did it uh, to protect Maggie from all this other scandalous information coming out. And John Shuck is in the episode. And as I said, Eleanor Parker, I'm going to keep going on about that because it's really fun to you know, nothing makes TJ happier than when a classic Hollywood star appears <laughs> in Murder, She Wrote. And we also have some lovely memories of Frank, and I just love... And we also have Don Most from Happy Days. We Don't do. forget that. Yep. And so, like, everything about this episode is one that you love about Murder, She Wrote. And even if, you know, all the murder pieces aren't particularly, like, exciting, I nevertheless loved it as an episode. And I just have to say that I really enjoy murder murder she wrote episodes, but also murder show episodes that have to do with the theater. Like, I just love mm, yeah anything to do with the theater. Of course, I'm gay, so of course that's no surprise. You're but. so gay. Listen, have we done theater since um, we had Broadway Malady, we had Sing a Song of Murder? But it's been a while, right? In it this, has been a while. It's been a while, yeah. And I mean, let's let's start here. It's very funny to me that Jessica repeatedly says that she's not a great actress. Like that I know, that's the best part of this up. episode. She's a set painter. She can't act. It's just, it's, I mean, it's one of those, it's almost too on the nose. Mm-hmm. Just because, of course, not only is JB, you know, Angela, obviously a great TV actress. She was, you know, arguably even more spectacularly successful on broadway and it's just like i know at this point she is a two-time oscar nominee a two-time emmy nominee and a multiple tony award winner when she's saying (laughs) i'm not a great actress (laughs) i just love it and i you know but of course it being angela lansbury she can sell jessica's humility in a very convincing fashion Mm -hmm. but I, i i i just love that we get to see this connection to her earlier life as a Someone who was of the theater, but not not necessarily on the stage. Yeah, listen, as a uh, tech former tech geek myself, who was always in the theater, majored in theater, spent every waking minute in that building, and was never on stage. I feel it. I feel mm-hmm. her relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, I was almost a theater major. I was very close to triple majoring in theater, but went with classics instead. But I've always felt a connection to the theater. Yes. Yeah. That's like the gayest thing you've ever said. Also like snobby thing too. I've always felt a connection to the theater. Is that snobbier than when I referred to that one book as having workmanlike prose or whatever the... Oh, that was so... First of all, that was just an insult to our listeners who read those books regularly. But anyway, let's not delve back into that. The point is Jessica was a set painter. And we learn in this episode, like in the last episode, we're getting more and more pieces of her previous life with Frank. Um, We learned that this is actually where she met Frank was at this theater. They were both set painters and she didn't really know what she was doing and he taught her and that's how they fell in love. I know. And I have to say, I really loved that little reverie that she goes into Mm. where she's like sort of mimicking her, the the brushstrokes and you can hear Frank's voice. And it's the voice. It's like this flashback voiceover. It's It's a little cheesy. It's so cheesy, but I'm, you know, 
I am assess- very susceptible to these moments of yeah, of sentiment, and I was just like, "You." I think generally in life, you're more cynical than I am. I think I'm much more of an optimist in life, but when it comes to stuff like this, I am a hardcore cynic. And you'll be like, "Wasn't that touching?" And you'll be like, crying. <laughs> I, to me, I need to just. I actually am an anti-cynic, as you should know. Like. I am sometimes pessimistic, but I'm. But as a rule, I'm not very cynical. I'm actually quite anti-cynicism in my life practice. Okay, nobody knows what that means, but that's fine. I sometimes have to tamp down Bridget's more exuberant optimism, but that's. I think that's mainly just to be a. a, a Except when it comes, I'm telling you, to media. Like you guys, one time we were Zoom. Well, it was before Zoom. What did we have? Skype, FaceTime, FaceTime. We were doing some sort of video conference while we watched the looking finale, like the two hour looking finale movie. And I'm watching it and I was like, what is this? No, and I look t- over t- at the screen and TJ is sobbing. No, and he's like, this isn't is, this so look, touching? Okay. I, need to inter- I need to intervene here to say that Bridget is retconning history. Like this is a classic Bridget retcon of misremembering what happened. Okay, she was you were definitely over- sobbing. Well, yes, I was, but you were also... Very teary-eyed, as I recall. I don't so I think you're that so, at all. Well, how convenient that you wouldn't. But we used to watch Looking every Sunday night together. That is true, but that's a whole other podcast. Video. It is another podcast. Like- Ooh, let's do a podcast on old queer TV shows nobody remembers. That's called Queens of the Bees, and that's the show. That's the <laughs> podcast that I already do. <laughs> Of which you have been on, which you have been a guest. <laughs> I have, I have been a guest to talk about Pillow Talk, one of my absolute yep. favorite movies. Anyway, so the Lunts are here doing a reunion play that is basically a copycat of Private Lives. Let's get it all out front, and let's talk because I'm they're totally villains. Let's call them. Um, let's 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 talk about Eleanor Parker for a second because you were drooling over her, and uh, I just think it's interesting that in a show about actors. Um, she appears to be acting in a totally different universe than like literally everyone else in this cast. The affect, the way she carries herself, the accent. I She is from a different planet. Yes. And I think that that is both indicative of the, of the milieu out of which Eleanor Parker herself emerged, which of course is classic Hollywood. Yeah, I don't think it's a character thing. I think it's a Parker thing. But it works for this character, like because she strikes me as being a Broadway diva, and that mm. is like, and that feels very authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Like I can see her being that kind of larger than life, very demanding persona in the in in the universe. But she who talks that weird. Too? I mean, as someone who often adopts a weird affected voice, like I don't find it that unusual. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't find okay. it that unbelievable. So are you saying that that was unbelievable? It's just so weird to me because we're supposed to buy that she and her husband and Jessica and Frank were like really, really, really good friends. And like maybe Maggie has developed this weird persona over the years in between as she's gotten more famous and more talented or whatever. But it's like she's sitting there doing her like swanning thing in this like emerald silk jumpsuit with her accent and her cheekbones and her oh, je suis <laughs> And here's like down home JB in her like cardigan is like, we're such good friends. And I'm like, I'm not seeing this at Well, all. <laughs> I will agree with you. And it does seem odd that Jessica would be friends with people like Julian and Maggie. Like that does seem a bit far-fetched. Because um, Julian's also... Well, he has that posh British accent, you know. Um, uh-huh. So it does seem like an odd choice of 
youthful company for, as you say, the homespun J.B. Fletcher. Um, and I do think that it is a little bit incredulous, shall we say, that I, I, I loved your imitation of, of Hecky. That was so, that was as good as my imitation of <laughs> the mayor from last week's episode. <laughs> Sam Booth. Jessica. Like, I mean, but it, again, it's not that unbelievable that someone from, you know, I was worse. It's like she has Novocaine or something. A little bit. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, but, you know, Eleanor Parker's quite old by this point, so. I know, it's probably a dentures issue. Yeah. <laughs> that's, your, that's your explanation for every old lady who slurs her speech. Is oh, it's her dentures, clearly. I mean, there's a point at which I feel like Lansbury's teeth start to become an issue and murder she wrote, but we're not there yet. But um, listen, I think there's a really sweet moment that reiterates the sort of homey cutesiness of, of Jessica. Um, she goes to a pharmacy that still has like a soda counter uh-huh. and she orders a banana split for herself. And I got so excited in that moment because I'm like, Jessica never does stuff like this. She like, she never treats herself she never just sort of indulges, you know, and it, and it's because, like, she and Frank used to go there and get this order, and it is such mm-hmm. a sweet moment. And then it turns out she's only there so she can, like, like hit up the, the guy who works behind the counter for, like, gossip because she knows he's the prop mm-hmm. guy in the theater. And I was like, oh, I'm, I just felt so disappointed because, like, she just – she never does stuff like that for herself. And then the one time she's about right. to, it's like, no, she's just using that as a way to get information. I felt like we were also watching sort of like an All About Eve, like, spinoff. Because, uh-huh. you know, there is that sense of, you know, for those the who are understudy, trying to take her part. Right. And the sense of, you know, theatrical plays during, touring the provinces, as they say, you know, uh-huh. to, to build buzz. And, I, and also, like, the soda fountain, which, of course, is a, uh-huh. is a relic. I don't I mean, it would be, you would be hard pressed to find Andy. Yeah, like, where is there even one? In 1986, <laughs> was there even one? Well, that's my question. I was like, what? Like, where in time is this? <laughs> this theater. This theater. Like, I mean, are we like some sort of small town? Like, I, w- I was. I had- went to a small town and they went back in time <laughs> to a small town. <laughs> well, because there's all these allusions to like what sells the play, like what's going to make the play successful. Because, you know, obviously, once the murder takes place, it's splashed all over the front page, which then, yes. of course, makes the producer excited because then they can bank on the, pro- the scandal. People are going to want to come and see this. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I love those kinds of theatrical conceits. I love it when shows and, and movies engage with that aspect yeah, of theater. Too, like, honestly. Which is really funny because in the last episode, we were knocking on episodes that are about TV ratings, which is basically the same thing. Well, yeah, exactly. But, the- but theater has, you know, a, a theater, more, a, the theater. A, a more refined cultural value <laughs> than, than the pedestrian and. And plebeian television. Well, speaking of refining, let's talk about the well. Let's talk about the police chief being part of the acting ensemble. If you want to talk about refinement, uh, yes. Well, first of all, let's talk about who plays him because <laughs> I think that's a very important part of this whole thing. Uh huh. So it's obviously John Chuck who is he. Anytime he appears in something, will make me smile because he's just so much fun to see on st- on screen. Because he plays schmuck, so... Is he... Yeah, like, is he always a doofus? <laughs> I think so. Well, no, he isn't um, in Blue Bloods, where he's, like, the police commissioner, I think, or something. Some, mm. Someone high-ranking. I think it's Blue Bloods. Like, the modern Blue Bloods? Like, yeah. the one with Tom Selleck? Yeah. Well, maybe by that point, he's old enough that he has some gravitas then? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I, it's hard for me to shake the image of, of Shuck as being the schmucky... This guy. Shuck the schmuck? <laughs> I mean, cause- so in this, in this, he's the small town police chief, 
who Jessica's like, ah, in my day, they always had to give a part to the mayor, but it's like they just had to give him a part because he's the police chief and he's terrible at acting. Like his job is to be the butler and he's just supposed to like bring out a drinks tray and he's like fussing with the glasses and like doesn't know what to do. And the lead actor basically has to be like, get off stage now. <laughs> and then and then later he like puts on a fake mustache and he twice he's like in his job as police chief trying to be Poirot because otherwise he doesn't even know how to be police chief unless he's performing the part. He explains to Jessica, she's going to write it and direct it and he's going to perform it. So there's a lot going on there with the allusions Good to, Lord. Po- to Poirot. So, I mean, uh-huh. first of all, this police chief is no Hercule Poirot. Like he is just e- no mustache. Well, <laughs> it's a rather unimpressive mustache. I think Poirot would be very dismayed. Well, there have been lots of different Poirot mustaches in the various Poirot I mean, okay. years. I, just, but I think we can all agree that David Suchet's mustache is the most ridiculous and therefore the most canonical that is the mustache. And it's also, we also need to be clear that I we haven't said this on this pod before. If we have, I'll reiterate it. David Suchet is the OTP, the one true Poirot. The one true Poirot. Like Absolutely. nobody will ever match that or has ever. I will gladly accept your hate email over that, listeners, because it is fact. I would like to know who else they would have who would wear Poirot. Certainly not Brandon. I don't. And so- well, some of them might feel that, you know, as a podcast about Murder, She Wrote, which stars Angela Lansbury, perhaps we have a responsibility to support her former brother-in-law. Yeah, but I mean, I like Busan, but he's too cartoonish. Like, he's he's too caricature. Mm. I mean, I like his part, but it's not Christie's part. Anyway, I don't, need right. to, I don't need to get on this whole spiel, but... It's amusing to me that they that that's the intertext that they use the Poirot for the and we, yeah I mean and they even say it out loud right it's yeah, not just exactly. like an illusion like they, he actually says it I mean if anyone he's Inspector Jap like who admittedly is far more competent than this police chief would oh, be oh it's amazing like this guy just keeps trying to do the Poirot thing like he summons <laughs> them all on stage and he's like going around and telling them what the facts are and the entire time we just keep cutting to Jessica rolling her eyes and shaking her head like you have everything all wrong right? and they arrest the wrong guy which I have a whole host of questions about that part because that's never really resolved on screen like the arrest of the uh-huh. wrong person they're just like uh-huh. well well, we'll we'll give you the the conclusion. But Jessica's just like lets them take this guy away, knowing he's not actually the murderer. <laughs> Were you as aghast as I was? Because I was just like, "What is happening right now? Like, under what no, evidence?" Because the doofus police chief won't listen to her anyway. So she's like, "Just that's fine. Perform the scene, and I will go do your actual job for you." But that's I know. Fine. But what about this poor guy who's being traumatized by being under false arrest under very like circum at, at best circumstantial evidence. I know. I, I know. I mean, even for murder, it's which, fine. He's going to be released in five minutes. It's fine. Sure. Okay. He, he probably won't even get fingerprinted. He, they won't even get that far. Sorry. I right. certainly hope not. I was very perplexed <laughs> when I watched it the first time, and then when I rewatched it, I was like, "What is even happening?" Because, of course, what happens is after he does his little Poirot scene, Jessica retreats to the dressing room with Julian and Maggie and confronts the fact that Julian was the one who was doing this all along. And because we find out that the understudy had been blackmailing Maggie with information that the two of them had had a child 30 years ago and gave it up for adoption um, so that it didn't interrupt Maggie's career. And um, Barbara, the understudy, had found out. And so she'd been planting little clues in the dressing room and on stage to sort of psychologically torture Maggie so she could take her part. And Julian wasn't having that blackmail. So he killed her. 
Right. Very logical. Yeah. So let's talk about Barbara. That's the understudy who is the sort of nefarious figure. We don't, I mean, we don't, she's dead pretty quick. There's. She is. Yeah. And, but that hair though, like that, (laughs) that deserves an episode of its own. Like even by 80s, 80s big hair. hair. Uh, Like it's not just the perm, it's like all the product. I was like, my. It's pretty crunchy looking, isn't it? It Like you can tell it's crunchy from, from on screen. And I, mean, I have no you know, right to judge because I always put way too much hairspray in and I don't buy the good quality hairspray. So my hair is also crunchy. But I'm just saying you could tell from on screen that her hair was going to be crunchy. I mean, when she washed out her hair, I imagine it was something like the Alcazan Valdez oil spill. Like, <laughs> Did you write that <laughs> earlier today just to save up for this podcast? No, actually, it's a reference. From, it's actually I stole that from Full House when they're talking about Uncle Jesse <laughs> washing out his hair. To okay, of- so you're you just you're like let's talk about this person so that I can give you my zinger that I didn't even write. Yes, that's very on brand for t- that's very <laughs> it's very like, on is- brand for you, yeah. But anyway, I mean, she is uh, she's an interesting look. She has a very striking. She has she has, she has a really. I thought her face was really interesting too. She's like I don't know if it's the coloring in the film, but she's like very dark. And then, like, no um, definition to her eyes or lips. Like, her lips are, like, very nude-colored against this very tan skin. And so it's just – it's a very strange look. Like, it's not, like, classically pretty 80s makeup in any way. Yeah, she looks kind of like Steven Tyler. Like, that was the <laughs> the first thing that struck me. I was like, if Steven Tyler was a woman, this is what he would look like. Oh, my God. I just feel like we need to apologize to the actor now. But you're right. She does. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and Andy's, I have broken Bridget. Like I think that she's short circuited. <laughs> right. Anyway, so she gets murdered um, very cleverly. She's um, murdered. Uh, and you know, yeah. I mean, I think that of as far as motivations go, I think this is a pretty convincing one because I mean, it's clear that Julian really, yeah. deeply loves Maggie and will really go to bat to defend her. Um, and so it makes sense that he would. Maybe murder in a, in a moment of of anger and rage. Like I mean, I think as we said last week, there are perhaps more sensible alternatives one could do. I don't think it's in a moment of anger and rage. I think it's uh, she needs to be taken out of the equation. Mm, yes, perhaps more cold hearted. But I, I see where you're going with this. You're going to the point that like she's just an understudy. There were probably other ways to take her out of the equation, like right. just getting her fired. Yeah, not not you know poisoning her, <laughs> poisoning her on stage. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so yeah. And then he stages, of course, the same scene to happen again with Maggie and swats the glass dramatically out of her hand on stage in front of an audience. So it continues to look like Maggie is the intended victim, right? right. Which is very similar to what we had last week. Of like this one person seems like the victim, but actually, you know, it's this whole other complicated thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I like that they keep replaying the same line. Well, first, we have to get rid of our number two. So, like, it's, you know. The, the, well, that's what I'm saying. Didn't it seem like private lives to you? A little bit, yeah. And and then, of course, the whole audience is like, ha, ha, how funny. How droll. How funny. <laughs> how droll. These two people who are terrible human beings who are going to remarry have to ha- are already married to other people. That's the plot to private lives. And then it also is like, you know, ha, 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 fun parallel to their own lives, right? Like, they mm-hmm. were lovers. They've been apart, but there's a question as to whether they're getting back together. And, um, Teach, you know what it reminded me of, too, the whole secret baby thing? It reminded me of the secret abortion thing that we have in the um, Harry McGraw episode with Barbara Babcock. No, I can see that. I find Julian's affect when he's talking about the child, their, you know, their love child, like, 
And I find his just general kind of coldness rather chilling. I mean, and I mean, mm-hmm. and in a good way. Like, it's very effectively delivered um, because he just seems so coldly rational about the whole thing. Like, I mean, maybe that's his Britishness. I don't know. But he's just like, well, we agreed that we weren't going to have this child in our lives. And whatever mm-hmm. he's done in the past 30 years doesn't matter now. And it's just like, well, like that's really cold. Like, it's like, I mean, whereas Maggie clearly has been tormented by the guilt over this, which is why the, you know, the psychological torture is so effective. Right. So yeah, I just, I, yes, yeah, so I, I enjoy that aspect of the story. <laughs> but just, it's yeah. giving me this look like, what else? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, so the psychological torture, you know, it's like someone plants a note that's like 30 years, you know, whatever, so reminding Maggie of when this incident happened, and then we get at the at the end of all of this sort of escalating stuff, we get the actual birth certificate being planted in her dressing room to like totally torture her. And um, I I think it's really interesting. Like TV always does this. There's like the moment where someone is like Jessica's like, "What? Tell me about their careers thirty years ago. Like what was going on?" And the one guy is like, well, Maggie quit the theater oh, to right. go like do movies, and then they find out that there was like a year gap, and it's like. It's so immediate in that moment. Oh, she took a year off. She was totally pregnant. She totally gave up the baby, right? Like, this is so obvious. And it's like, it doesn't, it's like, it come, but it comes as a shock. They're like, oh my God, of course she was pregnant. But it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, what else did you think she was doing for a year? Like, someone just disappears for yeah. a year and then she went to the spa? Like, right. I feel like TV does that all the time. Like, old TV anyway. Always yeah. does that, right? Like, the mysterious year, she disappeared for six months and, and then she suddenly came back and it's like, she had a baby. We all know she had a baby. It's always the same plot. She right. had a baby. I mean, I think that what that's gesturing toward is not necessarily that people were more innocent or naive, but that they were more willing to be duped. Like, that they were more willing to mm. put up the facade uh, and to embrace the facade of, of respectability. I mean, it's a very wasp thing. Like, you know. You, no, but this is part of your argument that we've lost that sense of courtesy in society, right? So, like. Which I think is why Jessica is so angry at the police chief when he, like, Jessica knows Maggie and Julian had a baby. They know she knows. But, like, the police chief makes a whole point of waving around the birth certificate in the big gather everyone together scene. And Jessica tries to stop him because she knows this will be, like, completely humiliating for them. Right. And, like, there's another way to handle this. We don't need to tell everybody who doesn't need to know that they had a baby. Right. So, I mean, it's, it strikes me that there's, like, an internal sort of, like, critique of that kind of theatrical approach to, mm-hmm. uh, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, to sort of exposing murderers. It's just, like, mm-hmm. airing all of the dirty laundry for everyone to hear is profoundly distasteful. Like, it's an interesting mm-hmm. kind of internal note of, of commentary on that particular oh. kind of approach that to murder. That is so interesting, Tej. I hadn't thought about that. But it's, like... They're critiquing the standard sort of Christie resolution, mm-hmm. or at least the Poirot Christie resolution. Right. I mean, that's gather what... everyone together and do the summation. Right, which of course is given added potency because of the whole theatrical background that is the backdrop for the entire episode. But you know what? Jessica does the summation thing in some episodes. Well, that's true. I mean, but it usually doesn't involve gather everyone together and air it all right. out. I- she does that sometimes. She does, but at least in those cases, I would argue that it's not necessarily like, hey, I'm going to expose, you know, the fact that you had a love child 30 years ago. Yeah. You're speaking of exposure. The other thing is that we have this guy lurking around the theater who Barbara the understudy lies and says it's her fiance, but 
There's supposed to be a question mark as to whether it's actually Julian and Maggie's son, but it turns out he's just a guy who's writing an unauthorized biography of the two of them, which Jessica finds out and is like really critical of. It's Mm -hmm. an unauthorized biography. And of course, as someone who's like looked into Lansbury's personal stuff, I can't help but think about like how that would have been so horrifying to her, right? Mm -hmm. Like she had so many offers to have biographies of her written and she refused to do any of them until Murder, She Wrote was over. Like she was very adamant that like this project needs to be over so that I can say what I need to say about it. And like, Oh, that's really interesting. So another internal criticism or critique of, of, I think it's like, in a way we can see this as like Lansbury's own um, critique of stardom, right? That like Mm -hmm. people want salacious gossip about you and they'll, and they'll write it whether you get a say or not. And you want to have a say. Oh, I like that. Oh, so the unauthorized biography is is like just it's such a violation. It is right. Yeah, that's really. I had not thought about that, but yeah, especially since you know the way that she delivers the line is just so laden with yeah, not contempt exactly, but certainly with um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ho- thinly veiled hostility, shall we say, or or disappointment maybe would be a better word like she's not angry she's just disappointed that someone would pursue this it's also just really interesting that you know someone would be writing a biography of theater stars because i don't know that this like i can think of only a very few stars of today's theater that would warrant such a an expose yeah i know like what's the audience i you know we didn't have streaming back then that's true i'm just curious i would i would want to look (laughs) to see like if there were a lot of broadway star biographies coming out in in the 80s. Oh, sure there were. I'm sure. I mean, you're the 80s scholar. You would know. I don't, I'm not a scholar of Broadway. But let's talk about fashion because we haven't talked about that in a while. And we she haven't. has such good outfits in this episode. She does. Well, you're the, you're the connoisseur. So. Okay. So my – okay. I'm just going to dive right into my first one. So my first one is a royal blue front pleat skirt and a white shirt with a pussy bow with a seersucker blue jacket. And then, I mean, it just looks amazing and it's totally something I would wear absolutely today. Um, And then, though, weirdly, she pairs that with black and white spectator pumps and a black purse. I just need to intervene for just a moment to say this is why I let Bridget take the charge with the the fashion. Do you have, like, any idea what I'm talking about? Only vaguely. Not because I have – not, but the the precision with which Bridget delivers these outfit rundowns is truly extraordinary. Like, I, I am in awe of her skill. I mean, at... I was like the sex in the city generation, right? Well, so was I, but I, I, I... Okay, listen, later, what I appreciate is that she wears the same shoes in the next scene, which you would do if you were traveling. You wouldn't pack 10 pairs of shoes. And she's wearing, um, uh, I don't know what she's wearing on the bottom, but on the top, she's wearing this pink and white striped shirt. So we're continuing the stripey theme of the seersucker. And then she has a red belt that she puts over the shirt. Such an interesting look, right? The shirt's not tucked into the skirt. The shirt is out of the skirt with the belt around it. And then she has a matching red purse. And it's just such an interesting look. It is. Yeah. I I mean, I was struck by the potent visuality of her looks. (laughs) See, that's that strangled elocution I was telling you about earlier. <laughs> yes, yes, dear. Yes. You know, if you're so intent to be such a stereotypical gay man, I feel like you should really do better with fashion. Like, that's kind of a big part of it, right? Yeah, but I don't care about that part. Which parts do you care about? Well, the gay sex part, the <laughs> musicals part, 
the looking down on the world part. Like I don't see <laughs> The being the life of the party part. I don't know. I don't, like, I don't have. Like, I don't have time to talk about fashion. I'm too busy with looking down on the world and having gay sex. The Oscar Wildean <laughs> part. Like I don't know what you want from me. Um. What else do we need to say? What else do we need to say about this episode? I mean, it seems like we've done a pretty good job. Like we've talked about the fashion, the murder plot, the guest stars. Like we hit all the major, you know, bingo card. I haven't used the word grace note in a while, so I, I didn't find time to pull that one out, unfortunately, but. We haven't used that in a couple of episodes now, I don't believe. I know. So. Well, I just did it just for our bingo player so they can get that I don't think that counts if you're talking about how you haven't used it. I mean, it's a little grace note to the episode that we're doing. I just want you to know that the lights are off in this room, so I'm really struggling to read my notes to figure out what we haven't talked about. I'm like holding the notebook up to the computer screen to use it for light. Are you on the Prairie Circuit 1850? Why don't you turn the lights on? (laughs) Because I'd have to get up away from my microphone to do that. Okay. And also because I live in Michigan, which is this glorious place because it's on Eastern time, even though it's really far west. And it's almost 9 o'clock and it's still light out, which is amazing. Um, Now if it were only warm enough to enjoy it. Okay. So listen, uh, the scrapbook. We talked about the police chief, the shirt, the spectator shoes, J.B. Fletcher, shoe fetishist. She is. Yep. There's that bingo card. Well, we hit all of my notes, Teach. Yeah, I think, we, I mean, like I said, I covered, I talked about Eleanor Parker. That was the only thing I was going to talk about. In That's this. what you really cared about? I mean, she was pretty big in classic Hollywood, so I'm glad we mentioned her. Oh, like, please explain to me because I went and looked at her credits and I don't particularly get where I'm supposed to know her from. Oh, well, I mean, for me, like her, one of her bigger, like bigger numbers or uh, roles was in Caged, which is a women's film noir where she's in a prison. Because I've seen that parodied in lots of things my parents don't know that I've watched. Yep. And so, like, I that's where I know her best from is that movie, which is one of the notable woman-centered uh... film noirs. As you know, most people probably know film noir is a very male-centered genre as a rule. But yeah. it's kind of nice that she is in one of the few that is about women and their experience. And what better place to have a noir than in a prison? There are a lot of them. It's, if you want to, like, situate it in other film noir prison movies, it's interesting paired to Brute Force, which is all about men and has Burt Lancaster and Hume Cronin and a whole bunch of other people. Anyway, that's what I know her from most. That's that. So that's why. I see. Do you know the guy who plays Julian is in a television version of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir? I did not know that. But I will say that he also looks a lot like Ted Hughes, the infamous yeah. husband of poet Sylvia Plath. Like, if you look at them, it's uncanny how much they look alike. And they're both British. So, you know, I'm just saying. Of course, that doesn't say much. Lots of British people look alike. <laughs> All British people look the same. Um, so I think what I'm left with, you know, last week, the the moral of the story was sort of like TV ratings are always going to do, you know, result in bad things happening. We pay too much attention to them. This week, I think the lesson that I'm left with is um, a lesson that we actually learned in Dead Man's Gold with Leslie Nielsen where, you know, he comes back after 20 years or whatever, 30 years, and and Mm. Seth has to remind Jessica they haven't been friends for that amount of time. They were friends that amount of time ago. And I kind of wonder if that's not the same message here, right, that – these people were obviously deeply important to Jessica's mm-hmm. life because she knew them when she first met Frank. And so they're cemented as like precious, precious people in her life because of that. But I think there's so much that she does not know about them anymore. And they seem to have very different lives from her now. I would completely agree with that. 
So she should just get on a bus back to Cabot Cove and play some chess with Seth. That is 100% accurate and true. (laughs) And that's a good place to stop. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And we'll see you next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>